Welcome to this Acadia Divinity College Chapel podcast. I am Stuart Blythe, a member of the faculty ADC and the Dean of Chapel. Here, you'll get a chance to hear perceptive and powerful sermons which were delivered by staff, faculty, students, alumni and guests as part of our weekly Wednesday Chapel services. Spencer asked, uh, or I asked Spencer, I said, is there kind of a broad topic going on uh, through this semester as you're the Dean of Chapel? And he said, um, you know, I'm suggesting maybe looking at troubling passages potentially and maybe looking at those from different angles. And so um, he asked for a title. And so I originally gave him a title and I said, it's in this Messiah and a baptism of repentance. Because this has been the troubling component sometimes with this particular passage. Um, but uh, because, of course, John's baptism is called the baptism of repentance, and repentance is about turning away from one's sins, and Jesus is God in the flesh, the second Adam, the perfect human. If there's anyone less in need of repentance, surely it was Jesus, no? Truthfully, though, I don't want to talk about any of that. <laughs> <laughs> We always need to acknowledge that the questions we ask about the text are themselves formed by our own preconceived notion, our theologies, and our traditions. This is true of all of us. Sometimes the questions will then press us into reading passages only in particular ways. But if I go back to Spencer's original suggestion about reading texts from different angles, this is where I want to wander about with a minute. First, let me give you a bit of personal narrative, because the real title of my sermon, if I were to give is Inhabiting Her Stories. Now, I recognize that some people here know me, others don't. So, just a very brief uh, part of my testimony as it were. Uh, many of you know I grew up in Winnipeg, and my mom and dad, they separated before I was two. And so it was my mom who uh, raised me, my mom and stepfather. My father passed away uh, when I was 17 after I graduated high school. So my dad and I were not particularly close. It was my mom who was my primary caregiver. And when I think about my extended family, whereas some of you may think of two particular uh, parts of a family as being extended, I think primarily of my mom's family, the Andersons. The Andersons are a large family. And my grandma and grandpa, who are both now passed on, were devout believers who came to faith later in their lives. So this has made Christianity a vital component of the Anderson family. My aunts and uncles are all born-again believers. The one exception is my mom. She's not anti-Christian. She's always very supportive of me. Um, she's always loved me. But I didn't grow up going to church except on those high holidays once in a while. And I didn't come to follow the Lord until I was 16. Now, the reason I tell you this is because my Christian faith is part of my maternal heritage, as it were. Yet there's also this other component of my maternal heritage that I knew even less about than Christianity, and that was my ethnic heritage. My biological father was a second-generation Austrian man. My mother is an indigenous woman, free in Anishinaabe. 
being in what is now Manitoba for many generations, that meant uh, that also we have a little bit of Scottish heritage because Scottish men came over to work for the Hudson's Bay Company. There's intermarriage there as well. My Indigenous heritage is not something I even really knew about until I was a young teenager, and there are a number of factors to this, including uh, the assimilationist policies of Canada, the discrimination that my family faced in Winnipeg, uh, but I was also shielded from it because uh, I simply have lighter skin than the rest of my family. But there is yet another side to why our ethnicity was not something we talked a lot about or understood, namely because of the church and its theology. Being native was taboo. Being First Nations was not something to be proud of, but something to avoid. It certainly was not an identity that was celebrated in the church. Indigenous peoples in Canada were pagans at best, worshippers of demons at worst. Now much of what I just said raises a whole lot of issues, issues that we're dealing with as a nation and as churches, issues we're learning from as a seminary as well. Again, I'm going to pass over all of that right now. A number of years back, I was working at ABC already. Uh, I was still working away at my PhD. And uh, through a chance meeting, I met a guy named Terry LeBlanc. And Terry, as some of you know, is a Mi'kmaq man and a follower of Jesus. And that encounter launched me into a whole new phase of cultural reformation as an indigenous person and working out what decolonization means for the church, for Christian theology, and for my work as a biblical scholar, because that's my trade, as it were. So in short, uh, in these last few years and going into the future, I'm trying to inhabit my story that was lost. The story, though, that I was born into. And as a biblical scholar, I'm seeing what, a, what assets my cultural and ethnic heritage might provide me as a scholar. What will, uh, how will it help me to read the text of scripture? And this is difficult work because it's been repressed generationally. But we all inhabit stories. And these stories shape us. And they shape our encounter with the text of Scripture. And this is not a bad thing. We're created as embodied creatures that inhabit stories. Now, standard textbooks on, not all, but some standard textbooks that teach us how to interpret Scripture will often tell students to recognize one's preconceived notions in order to set them aside so that you can read the text in a more unbiased way. Now, this sounds on the surface like a good strategy, but don't be fooled. Yes, we should examine ourselves, but we make the mistake of thinking we need to examine ourselves in order to only strip away the bad. I think we also need to examine ourselves to see the good that we bring. Our stories can be a gift, not simply to you personally, but it can be a gift to the wider church as you read scriptures in your communities. My work with Nate's and Indigenous Learning Community has provided me with many wonderful memories where my teaching from the text of scripture, read through my indigenous eyes, have opened up and allowed other indigenous followers to feel proud of their heritage. has given them permission to bring all of themselves to the Lord, to the church, and to their discipleship. It's provided me with opportunities to continue this work as well. One publication uh, which is immediately relevant to the text that we read today was a short commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, some of you know I call that the best gospel. <laughs> InterVarsity Press, uh, either this year or next, will be publishing a one-volume commentary called The New Testament in Color. They contracted 27 authors representing a wide variety of uh, people with differing perspectives and ethnicities. And so the task was very specific, as I talked to the editor, 
He said, you need to lean into your indigenous heritage and write this commentary. Don't tell me what all the other people are saying. Tell me as you read it as an indigenous person what you see. That was a bit nerve-wracking. <laughs> and it actually prevented me from starting for a long time. I didn't feel I was ready to do that, and I had to get an extension. Luckily, others did too. I wasn't actually the last one to submit. <laughs> <laughs> So I spent the extra time reading more uh, from indigenous authors, both Christian and non-Christian. And when I started again, the words started to flow, and I shouldn't have been surprised, but I think I did have new insights. So let me share some of those with you now about the passage. When indigenous people begin to ask questions to understand something, the questions often begin at the relational level. Whereas some may come to this particular text and say, why did Jesus get baptized or feel the need to? I suggest that the immediate abstraction of why did he do that already sends us potentially in the wrong direction. Indigenous folks encourage us to ask the relational questions. Who was there? And because the land is not objectified in the indigenous worldview, they also ask the question, where did this happen? Land holds memory. Chronologies and histories collapse into geography. Cultural and historical memories of people are irrevocably tied to land. So when Jesus headed out, he was not saying to himself, I think I need to get it done. <laughs> so what do the relations in this passage say? First, Jesus identified with the people of his day. Matthew 3, 5, and 6 says, Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him. That's John. And all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Jesus did not think of himself as better than others not needing to participate in the moves of his community. We see from elsewhere in the Gospels that he participated in the holy days and pilgrimages of the people. These holy days themselves reenacted the stories of Israel. In going out to the Jordan to see John, Jesus walks in step with the very people he has come to minister to. Now there are, of course, times when believers need to swim against the tide of the wider community to specifically not follow the way of the community if it's going in the wrong way. But perhaps before we choose to oppose or isolate ourselves, we need to, uh, and we don't want that to be our default stance, maybe first we make the choice to flow along with, to be among and to be with. Second, Jesus came to hear John. John the baptizer is a well-known figure. In the Gospel of Matthew, John is second only to Jesus and how much he teaches. And we heard that bulk of teaching in the reading today. So if we look at the Jewish historian Josephus, for instance, he tells us more about John than he does about Jesus. This guy was well known. Notice in verse 5 that the people are going out to him. Later in verse 7, even the religious leaders are going out to hear him too. John's not standing in a temple. He's not in Jerusalem. He's an ascetic. He lives off bugs for food. He dresses like a nomad in a simplistic, utilitarian style that was typical of poor people. And yet the masses are coming out to him. And that includes Jesus. Jesus has something to learn from John. When you encounter a wise person, a prophet, a knowledge keeper like John the Baptist, you absorb all that you can. You allow their wisdom to shape you and affect you. And when your time comes to speak, their influence will shape your own words. And this is exactly what we see with Jesus. The first time that Jesus preaches, preaches in the gospel is not until Matthew 4.17. 
From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. These words are an exact echo of John's first words in Matthew 3, 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Catholic scholar John Meyer, as well as others, have argued at length that John was Jesus' mentor. Third, John established himself at a particular location. And that place held memories and even the lifeblood of his people. Now, I'm from Winnipeg. Some others uh, have been to Winnipeg. And if you know anything about Winnipeg, you know it's the place where the intersection of two huge rivers happened, the Assiniboine and the Red River. In more recent times, the home of the famous uh, uh, street corner of Portage and Maine. Winnipeg is not a city without the meeting of these rivers. For the land of Israel, next to the Creator Himself, the greatest life giver for the people of Israel is the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. This is the water supply and the fish supply. Now, can you think of a more vital relationship than looking at something and say, I would die if I didn't have you? That's what they would be saying to the Jordan River. We all need water. In addition to that, the Jordan River was the place that parted when Joshua led the people into the promised land. Being in the Jordan and being called to return to covenant faithfulness brings us back to the stories of Israel. Now recall from them reading what John says in Matthew 3.9, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. That was in this fascinating. Rocks have some sort of agency, some sort of animacy toward God. We hear this elsewhere in the Psalms and other parts of the scripture. And is John just talking about the stones on the river's edge? Actually, I think it's possible John is actually referring to the 12 stones that Joshua brought and the people placed in the middle of the river as they passed through in Joshua 4. This calls the people back again to the stories that have shaped them as people. John McNally, just in case you thought I stole what you just said in a meeting about John, Joshua 4, I had it written down. <laughs> now there's one more component to this. Now trace with me these events in the birth of Israel. They exit Egypt. They pass through the waters of the Red Sea. They wander 40 years in the wilderness. Now think back to the Jesus story, because Jesus embodies this story exactly. Matthew 2, he exits out of Egypt as a child with his parents. He then passes through the waters of the baptism, and then he spends 40 days in the wilderness. This is not accidental. Jesus is wrapping himself in the stories of his people. He identifies with them and their history. He identifies with them as they embrace the renewal movement of John the Baptist. And he does all of this in preparation to lead his people into the inbreaking kingdom of God. But before he does that, he needs to encounter the Creator too. The fourth relational component in this story is an encounter with the other members of the triune mystery. God the Father speaks when Jesus is in the waters. The voice, voicing his intimate love and pleasure in Jesus, Jesus himself needed divine affirmation for a divine calling. So do you, and so do I. But notice that this is not just God the Father who appears here to Jesus. Matthew tells us in Matthew 3.16, And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and a light. Now, just in case you think this is some sort of visionary experience, 
Luke provides us a little bit of help in Luke 3.22, and he clarifies that the Holy Spirit came in bodily form as a dove. Now let's pause right there. Because I don't think that Christian theology has adequately grappled yet with the fact that God the Holy Spirit was the bird. <laughs> it's not only God the Son who was incarnate, but God the Holy Spirit entered into non-creation. In fact, I want to suggest that God the Holy Spirit has been encountered as creation from the outset. In the very first verses of our Bible, it says that God's wind swept over the waters. Genesis 1-2. That Hebrew word, ruach, means spirit, breath, or wind. When you feel the wind, are you reminded of the spirit's presence? The point of Genesis 1-2, I think, is not that God's invisible presence was hovering over the waters, but that this that this visible, feeling, windy uh, breath, as it were, is a manifestation of God. But back to the bird. What does this do to our theologies? How are we to think of non-human creation around us? The idea that non-human creation can visibly manifest the greater, that's not really a problem for us indigenous folks. It's something that your theology may need to deal with. <laughs> Jesus was the God-man. Here, Holy Spirit was the God-bird. Perhaps we need to move from thinking that nature is simply a venue for encounter God, but that we may encounter God in and through non-human creation. Now let me remind you of something you already know, but it's relevant for our passage. You know chapters and verses didn't come originally with the text. It come, came much later. Most of the time, I'm fine with these separations. Sometimes, though, they really do damage. The very first chapter separation in the Bible is a terrible one. And you know as well that all of the subtitles in your Bible are added by the translators too. These subtitles can predispose us to the way we read the content of the passage that follows. Another problem with these separations is that sometimes we're tricked into thinking that there is a firmer separation between what happens before and what happens after. Now, why do I highlight this? Well, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Here's why it matters. Jesus is about to go on a vision quest out in the wilderness. And Matthew's clear in 4.1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It is the Spirit that leads Jesus out into the wilderness. Now, remove the subtitle in your mind. Remove the chapter 4 in your mind, where it says, The Temptation of Jesus. And then you go into chapter 4. Once you remove this break, how does it change the reading? Simply this. Jesus is following a bird out into the wilderness. Picture it. The dove lives off from Jesus' shoulder and moves to a branch, and Jesus follows. He gets closer, and moves further on to the next branch along the way. Indeed, perhaps this was the entirety of the 40 days. Perhaps Dove never left, but stayed within eyesight of Jesus the entire time, like the pillar of fire that led Israel all around the wilderness. Perhaps Dove, the Holy Spirit, led Jesus around and provided him silent support for this vision quest, and perhaps just like how we need to rely on the Holy Spirit, when we're being tempted and tested by the enemy, perhaps Jesus too needed it. He needed uh, the Holy Spirit to be. And perhaps this needs to stretch our mind and understanding, such that we see the infusion of the divine presence in all of creation. Let me close with one last thought for us to ponder. 
I've highlighted the change that occurs when we take away the chapter separation and subtitle, when we envision this story. But doing this also places a very sharp distinction in Jesus' circumstances. Jesus has just received affirmation by God the Father, a voice from heaven. God loves him and is well pleased with him, and being so well pleased, he's immediately led to 40 days of starvation in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil in the very next verse. Perhaps this means that there are hard times of trial in your life, and hard trials in my life, that are not happening because God is mad at you or punishing you, but because maybe God is pleased with you. Perhaps you're currently in or will in the future be led into times of testing and trial because you have something to learn during that time of trial. That like Jesus, you're being prepared for something greater. That God has some way for you to contribute to the growth of his, the spread of his gospel, but you need to go through a time of trial. Learn from a place Lean into God's word, rely on the Holy Spirit in a new way, or even stand up against spiritual forces beyond yourself. Perhaps you're being called to inhabit your story, to wrap yourself in the stories of your people, or even to discover a new God-sized story that will be the script for the next stage of your life. And this is difficult, I understand. Let me close with a couple of words from a new song that my younger son had turned me on to. When the rain you want is a flood instead, and the roses bloom, but they're not quite red. When I reach the edge of my bravery, I'll still be singing at the banks of an unparted sea, but sometimes the only way through the hallelujah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us in this Acadia Divinity College Chapel Podcast. You can follow us on social media. Discover more on our website at acadiadiv.ca or join us for chapel on a Wednesday. <laughs>